mistreat me this way. I've been left out of everything, each and every way. Yesterday, we got this announcement from the UAW, delivered, I think, in, you know, uncanny fashion by Sean Fain wearing his badass Eat the Rich shirt. Yeah. I really, it really warmed my heart to see that decision. Um, but the, the, the announcement was really interesting in that they won a victory over getting uh, electrical vehicles into their master contract, which apparently was at the bargaining table stated as an impossibility by the employer. I guess I wanted to hear your reaction to it because I feel like it also kind of points to some of the vision and the more ambitious, I would say, socialist vision that's baked into the article that you wrote for Jewish Currents about revaluing the strike. One thing that's really interesting about this this victory is that, I mean, not only did they say that it was it was an impossibility, but it is, you know, this is the kind of thing that that unions are not supposed to be able to strike over. This is about the jurisdiction of, of the unit. Um, it's about who's, you know, which kinds of workers are are in the union and which are not. And that's not supposed to be the kind of thing that you're able to strike over. What this shows to me is that the current UAW leadership is is less concerned than its predecessor, certainly with rigidly obeying what they are and are not supposed to to do and kind of deferring to federal labor law to dictate their their strategy and their approach. It's the kind of thing that is potentially an important precedent. I was reading your article in Jewish Currents Revaluing the Strike. And one of the things I really like about it is how you kind of highlight that overall, the majority of the labor movement, at least union leaders and their rhetoric, look at striking as like an instrumental tactic for purposes of bargaining exclusively. Like you you strike to win better contracts and it's always like a last resort. But you point yeah. out that, you know, this is really narrowing the scope of the strike uh, utility, like as a weapon of the working class, it could do much more. And historically it yeah. always has. So could you talk a little bit more about like, you know, how strikes were employed historically to actually build the labor movement and some of the things that we were able to win through striking? Yeah, definitely. When you look back, it's important not to kind of project our our current model of, of labor relations and union activity back onto earlier periods. I think that it's important to try to insert yourself back into this perspective where we have an industrial working class appearing on the scene for, for the first time. And it's not totally obvious what people are going to do, what the kinds of action they, they're going to take will be to try to better their lives. And so striking becomes an important tactic to you know, signal that this, this new working class is a class. It's not just a, a collection of disparate individuals and that it's going to take an oppositional stance towards capital, towards the, the employing class. And, and this is something that, that contemporaries remark upon. That striking, especially in the late 19th century, you know, isn't just about trying to gain a, a particular concrete, you know, objective or concession from an employer, but it's about making workers feel 
empowered developing a, a politicized uh, identity of oneself as a member of, of the working class. And you see this idea resonate, crop up again throughout the 20th century strikes as a, a means of a protest against the kind of overall direction of labor relations, capitalist governance. In the piece, I talk about the, the wave of strikes after the end of the Second World War, which encompassed a, a variety of, of causes and objectives, but included a number of strikes, and in some cases, strikes that grew to become general strikes gripping entire cities that had at their root some kind of particular grievance. But as the strike developed uh, and and grew, it often, the, the rhetoric that emerged from the strikers was much more about the idea that, you know, with the war ending, returning to civilian life, this is a moment when things are kind of up for grabs and the working class needs to apply pressure to build power and create the kind of world they want to live in. And the strike is also a tool of protest against union leaders. I talk about wildcat striking, which is made illegal striking without official union authorization. This is, you know, especially as a, a, a somewhat more conservative or you know conciliatory faction, kind of takes control of a lot of American unions in the mid twentieth century. Wildcat striking becomes a, a tool of protest against union leadership as well as employers insisting on ordinary rank and file workers continued right to exercise power in the workplace and take a role in, in shaping the the future of their union. Yeah, I like in you know in your article, which is a pretty broad sweep of labor history and some of the more detrimental impacts of labor law in this country. And I appreciate that you have attention paid to like how the NRA really narrowed and constrained striking, created like an incentive for good unionism versus bad unionism, where bad unionism means basically communist, I guess, like yeah. any anybody that wants more than just a slice of the pie. But what I thought was important is that you also note it's not just labor law itself that you know changed the tenor and horizon of the labor movement that it was actually labor leaders like often at the forefront of kind of making concessions changing the rhetoric limiting like the member democracy and input and how unions work and so kind of bringing it back to UAW today i i wonder like you know i know that you formerly worked for the UAW as a staffer how does it make you feel seeing this reform movements gain traction, striking kind of being reasserted as like not just for bread and butter, but even for political rights. What has that experience been like for you from once upon a time previously having like an insider yeah. perspective on the union? Yeah, well, it's it's just extraordinary. And I mean, what I feel first and foremost is a, a great sense of pride in the people that I know who, you know, who work to make this a reality. You know, some of uh, a, a former colleague of mine ended up leaving the UAW staff to become staff organizer for the the Reform Caucus UAWD. The first uh, president of the union that I helped to organize as a, a graduate student, um, Brandon Mancia, is now the international executive board of uh, UAW, director of of Region Nine A. It's part of that sort of uh, the, the slate of reformers that. Gained a majority on the the UAW executive board, and you know that that majority is is really. I mean, Sean Fain winning the presidency is is huge, but you know if he didn't have that majority, it would, it would be hard to to really implement this vision. 
And I, I think that it's important to emphasize that this isn't just one individual, one a particular race, but there's this this much, I mean, a longer reform movement that, I mean, in some ways, you know, it rises and falls, but you can trace it back to the the 1960s, even the 1950s, that came to fruition here. Uh, and it's because of that infrastructure, that organizing infrastructure, the fact that the reformers, you know, have a have a presence on the shop floor level in locals all across the country. If it was just Sean calling for all this stuff from Solidarity House, and there wasn't that, that infrastructure and that, that culture of organizing that UAWD and um, their allies have, have built up in these plants across the country, you wouldn't see, I think, the, the, the degree of mobilization that we're seeing today. And you wouldn't see employers nearly as as scared as, as they obviously are. So to me, that's the that's the big thing that I that I would want to emphasize. I mean, Sean is very charismatic and it's great to see him go on and say see eat the eat the rich. But I think that he would be the he would be the first to say that the lesson here is need a movement. And it's a, it's an ongoing process changing the culture of, of the UAW. You know, it's it's certainly not not over. There are definitely pockets, you know, where there's uh there's there's still skepticism. But I think the more the strike wins, the the more that skepticism will dissipate as people see, you know, the the more militant approach vindicated. Well, exactly. Like it remains to be seen like what the long-term transformation will really look like of the UAW and any other kind of reform caucuses that are trying to aspire to similar changes in their unions. And part of that process that I think you kind of point to as well is also transforming or get, moving away from seeing striking as like just an instrumental tool for bargaining specifically. UAW's rhetoric has changed publicly. There's been a lot to applaud, but it still has that tenor of like the striking was a last resort. It's not something that we want to do. And it's something for, you know, bargaining purposes. Yeah. What I, what I like about your article is that it ends with, um, I'll just quote from it. The tragedy of every strike for now is that it ends. <laughs> uh, work returns. The question of how to retain after the return of work, the ultimate horizon made visible by the strike, the substitution for workers' own will for the will of capitalists and the governance of the labor process. I think it's a really interesting point that, what you're saying is like, really, we have to expand our political imagination in the union world to see striking as a social good, as a yeah. weapon that like shouldn't be a last resort. And also something where we start considering like, when do we even stop working entirely? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I think, you know, striking can be an extremely taxing and and, and difficult experience. But, you know, I mean, I, I helped lead a, a 29 day strike in 2019. And when when I look back on, on that time, it feels like a, a kind of break in a in a kind of radical way, sort of discontinuous with uh, everything that came before and after. And I think that 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 kind of exceptional space there's there's something very liberating and exhilarating there. And I, I think you know we're we're seeing that already. I mean the the UAW's rhetoric was 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 more cautious heading into the strike, and you know, they they had these buttons that said I don't want to strike, but I will if I have to. But I think that even already, you know, as the strike has has gone on, the the tenor of the rhetoric has changed a little bit. I mean, they're they're having they're having fun with it now. You know, they're mm-hmm. they're not afraid, I think, to 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 admit that they're having fun with the strike. That there's something you know freeing and empowering about this experience and about the degree of chaos that they've created for the big three. The kind of this weekly sort of media spectacle where Sean gets on the live stream and you know announces which plants are going on strike, who's which of the big three has capitulated that that week mm-hmm. on on something. There's a lot of joy 
So I, th- I think, again, that's that's one of the reasons to actually go on strike is because when you're staring down a strike before it happens, you know, it can it can be really anxiety provoking. You know, you worry about all the things that, that could go wrong. And, you know, of course, it's it's good to think through contingency plans and to have a sense of what's coming. But I think it's it's much easier to it's much easier to embrace striking and the, the possibilities that it opens if you're actually on strike. Yeah, it's like action begets further action, right? Yeah. And it kind of opens up the imagination in itself. I like when you start to see like kind of strike lines get a little weird that you can tell like the longer that they go, it seems like partly it's fatigue, but I think it's also just like kind of the creativity that emerges in a long-term strike. I remember in Philadelphia, the museum workers were on strike for about maybe three weeks and going into the third week. I mean, these are also museum workers, so like creative, artistic people with artistic sensibilities. So it kind of lent to this, but they you started seeing these weird like puppeteers and, you know, costumes that multiple people would have to like um, put the costume on and they would create like a big horse or like a Picasso animatronic on the picket line, stuff like that. It yeah. just, it seemed almost like kind of harkening back to, to the days when I was more into this like insurrectionary anarchism mindset of like a, almost like a temporary autonomous zone. Like this is a space yeah. now that we own and we've taken over it. Yeah, there's a kind of festival element to it. Um, yeah, I, there was some great puppeteering. I was at a uh, a grad student union picket line in, in 2021, and there was there was an amazing puppet that uh, sort of represented the kind of like ravenous maw of the of the employer. I think that that stuff is is terrific. I mean, striking requires a lot of creativity. You know, tactically, what the UAW has done so far is is, is quite creative and. And it requires workers to be to be creative, and so I think that that kind of you know creating that kind of space uh, is is really important. I was I was just out on the in Mansfield, Massachusetts, uh, near where I live here. There's a, a Stellantis plant that's that's on strike, and I went out there last weekend, and uh, there was like a, a a Bluetooth speaker, and you know someone had their phone picked up, so people like took turns sort of record. You know what was the what was the the song that was that was you know going to come next? Bitch, better have my money, with Rihanna. Uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> so it was a it was a you know kind of participative. Everyone was uh, you know calling out their their favorite songs and adding to the queue. And it's not like the Stellantis executives were you know watching with binoculars and like <laughs> you know while this was happening. But it builds builds community. And uh, again, I I think I mean to the the point of the passage that you quoted. When you're running a strike, I think that you you have to to think about you know not just how are we going to use this strike to win, but how are we going to use this strike to set up the next one? How are we going to use this strike to set up you know what happens when we return to work to 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 grow our union? You know how do we use this to change the the kind of dynamics on the on the shop floor once we get back to work? It's like a cultural building yeah. uh, exercise, absolutely. Like a, how do you like strikes help build union culture? On the Starbucks picket, I'm, I'm forgetting who the workers got so fucking jazzed. And I think it was um, Britney Spears or something like just random stuff that's not even necessarily, you know, part of the union legacy of like labor songs and all that it was just getting workers all riled up and like excited and dancing on the picket line. It was great. And now it's become like a reminder song about the next strike, you know, like it's a yeah. cue. Like it reanimates even popular culture and like gives it like a radical tenor. Yeah. I mean, you think about the role of, I mean, strikes, strikes, 
I think one one thing that they do is they require a place in the kind of like mythology of, of union movements, and I th- I think that's not to be underestimated. Um, you know, definitely the the Teamsters. I mean, a, a lot of this uh, new piece of mine is about the Teamsters. They had this strike against UPS in, in 1997. Um, that was a kind of landmark moment for the the trajectory of the of the reform movement in, in that union. And even though the kind of pendulum swung in the other direction and the the Hoffa regime sort of regained control after that strike, the the fact that there, that there was this moment, you know, it's it's like a, a landmark that constantly gets harkened back to. And so, you know, when the reformers were gaining power and finally throwing out, you know, Hoffa Jr. declined to, to run again and the other Sean, Sean O'Brien, was elected. That nineteen ninety seven strike, it was it was something that just people would return to again and again. You know, this is what we're this is what we're after. You know, we need to we need to do this again. And that's why I think that it's kind of a shame that they they didn't end up doing it again this year. Um because, you know, that that ninety seven, you know, timeline, it's it's gonna it's gonna start receding. You know, fewer and few fewer people will be around who remember that, remember what it was like. You know, even thinking about the teachers. There are these like famous strikes now, you know, Chicago Teachers Union in, in 2012, the the red state strikes in 2018. You know, right now, you know, a lot of a lot of teachers unions are are still, you know, jurisdictions where striking is illegal. And so to, you know, to have that precedent to say, you know, well, if they were willing to to defy the law and, and go on strike in, you know, this red state, why don't why why can't we do it, you know, in this in this jurisdiction? That kind of sense of of a, a kind of collective history, a sense of like precedent, and sense of participating in, in a movement bigger than oneself. I, you know, that's what it's all about on some level. Well, and going back to the Teamsters too, even one of their mythological historical events in their history was the 1934 major strike in Minneapolis, which I yeah. think you can make a good argument that it effectively built the union in the first place. Like, yeah. Prior to that, their membership levels are extremely low, and then they just exploded. Yeah, well, strike. Yeah, that's that's a, a theme throughout labor history. Strikes the dawn of the the union. Uh, I think it's this is one kind of you know cool feature of what's going on in the UAW right now is the they're they're constantly harkening back to the the sit down strike in Flint in in thirty seven that that really you know, forged the UAW in the first place. And so you know they they have all these videos with like archival footage of that time, and you know they're they're calling what they're doing right now the, the stand up strike as opposed to the the sit down strike. And so this rhetoric is it's reminding people of the ability of strikes. To build a union, you know, not just to to get a contract. So I think that's that's another way where the rhetoric, um, I think, evolving even just in the last few months, it's evolved in a, a more militant direction. There's there's more embrace of of the strike. I mean, you know, you wouldn't say the Flint strike was like a a necessary evil or something. It's like, you know, no, that was good. That built the that built the UAW. We wouldn't have a UAW if it wasn't for that strike. It wasn't just something that workers were like forced to do because they they had no other op- option. That was that was part of the vision of, of building you know this union that we have today. And I think that it's a great reminder. I, I think it's it's awesome that they're bringing that experience kind of back to the forefront of people's thinking. I'm all on board for this vision <laughs> and kind of the deeper philosophy around rejecting work. You know, I, I often talk about capitalism boiled down to its most basic essence is really just the imposition of work. Right, like the yeah. imposition of work that you don't, that don't necessarily benefit you, and I I think that that's that's something. I mean, I I quote Mario Tronti on on this uh, 
near the end of the piece, you know, that, that's something that's made visible in a unique way when you go on strike. When you go on strike, you experience the employer, you know, trying to get you back to work, you know, trying to reimpose work on you. And, and that, I think, makes visible the imposition of work in a way that's you know, really difficult to see in the same kind of way in the, the, the kind of ordinary routine of things, where often workers are, are put in the position of, you know, seeking out work, trying to get work. That's the struggle. And so to turn the tables, I, I think that's one of the most important sort of experiential dimensions of striking. I'd be curious to hear more of your thoughts on how we can continue to ride this wave and increase the levels of strikes that accomplish not only gains, but also expanding the political imagination. Because I imagine like, you know, for me, I'm all on board. I love this. I think of striking as not just an instrumental, you know, necessary evil, but as like a social good. But I think everybody would acknowledge that the culture surrounding us, just like the pervasive mainstream ideology, is really, really yeah. difficult to cut against. And I've had a lot of conversations that surprised me even recently with like workers where, you know, they have really valid grievances, there's issues on the shop floor. And it's not uncommon for them to conclude that the solution to a lot of these problems is like better management or like more managers. Yeah. And then I find right. myself being like, well, maybe you don't want an increased like an intensification of the existing power structure at your workplace. Like maybe managers aren't actually going to accomplish anything that you're talking about needs to be accomplished. But I don't know. What do you think about these challenges and how we can continue yeah. to see this positive trajectory? I don't think there's there's any kind of one magic trick. I think that, you know, part of the the lesson of UAW is that again it, you know it has to it has to start with the movement i mean exactly what you were just saying you know wishing for better management you know we we can fall i think into the the same trap when we think about our unions as well you know if if only you know the the union president you know just had had different rhetoric but again you know the story of of UAW is not Sean Fain somehow managed to get elected and then everything changed after that no it was that there was the the movement that that put Sean into power, you know that preceded the that preceded the election. I mean, so much of the transformation in some ways all already occurred. His victory was a, was a sign of the transformation that had already occurred. So I think that that you know kind of organizing you know reform caucuses like UAWD, Teamsters for a Democratic Union, um, TDU, you know that's that's I think a really a really important model. You know, trying to build this this more you know militant, strike friendly culture from the bottom up. The closest thing to like a a, a technical hack uh, that I I have to recommend, I I really think that it's it's very important for people at the bargaining table to push on on contract duration. You know, this is a a kind of hypothesis of of mine that I I do think that among myriad other reasons. One reason for the the decline in the in the rate of striking in the, the second half of the 20th century is that, you know, contract duration starts to get longer. For a long time, there was an annual bargaining cycle. And that often meant at the very least the possibility of an annual strike. And that really changes, you know, especially once you get into the 1950s. It's often a a temptation, you know, okay, we we have this contract, you know, it's 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 not perfect, but you know, the the employer says that they'll they'll agree to another wage increase, you know, if we agree to make this contract four or five years instead of you know, two or three years. It feels like a kind of no-brainer, you know, yeah, concrete money. 
you know, versus versus contract duration. But I I think that it's it's hard to build a culture of striking if you've you know signed a a no strike pledge for you know half a decade. Uh, I mean, in some cases, you know, some collective bargaining agreements are just you know the the, the duration is really really big. So one of the things that I've been really excited about lately is the the fact that the the new Writers Guild agreement is is just three years, um, which which for that union is I mean it was it was fifteen years since the last strike. There's a there's definitely the the chance now of of another writer strike and just in three years from now. You know, not that the last CBA was was fifteen years, but you know it's the kind of thing that if you kind of get back into that mindset of saying, okay, yeah, this is we'll agree on this for now, but like we're going to reopen this very soon and we're we're going to you know we're going to strike. If you want to build up a, a culture of striking, you know you just can't agree to 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 four or five year contracts. Because a shorter contract increases the a number of opportunities you have to legally strike, or like under the you know narrowed parameters yeah. of labor law. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously the we want to expand our horizons, think beyond what's what's legally possible. But the, the fact is that you you know you have to start somewhere, and right. I, I do think that those you know an increasing tolerance for you know, non-legal or even illegal striking, you know, it's it's hard to go from like zero to to that, mm-hmm. um, to to make that that leap instantly. So I think it's sort of all all options on the table. And I, I think that the if you have more frequent strikes that do kind of take this you know, maybe slightly less radical form, they're they're legally sanctioned, they're part of the collective bargaining process. It may critique restricting the the scope of, of striking to that but I, I think that in his historical terms you know the rate of striking I mean even you know what, what we're seeing this year you know it feels like such a, a watershed but it's it's just such a drop drop in the bucket compared to you know even 50 years ago the degree of strike activity that that you saw you know in the late 60s and early 70s even a commitment to shortening the typical length of a CBA has deeper implications than simply more opportunities to strike because, you know, what I know a rep or somebody will say to me as a concern about that strategy is like, well, then it also opens up the opportunities for decertification. Like if we have shorter contracts, then we have like more frequent decerts that we have to fight off. And to me, that's like, well, that just speaks to the need to go deep in our organizing and actually have high levels of member engagement. And even that is like a big sea change, I would say, in the majority of the mainstream labor movement. Yeah, definitely. For a long time, there's a culture, there was a culture of suspicion of of membership that really set in in American unionism. And especially, you know, with the the wave of, of decertifications in the in the Reagan era, I mean there was this kind of the, the story that most workers are, you know, basically conservative. They don't really like they don't really like having a union. Is a kind of miracle that we that we got all these workers signed up in the in the 30s and 40s, and you know the task is to just kind of prevent sort of member attrition from you know dissolving what we had inherited. And I think we've you know we've we've seen where that attitude leads. It's a it's a total dead end. It's a self fulfilling prophecy. It fosters mutual suspicion. You know if members members know that their that their leaders don't trust them. You know, then they don't trust their leaders, um, and then of course, you know that that gets used to you know further justify. Well, we can't let the members have too much of a say. We can't rely on them too much. You have to make demands of people. You have to let people surprise you and and rise to the occasion. 
I think that's, you know, something that, that striking does. People discover that they're capable of stuff they didn't know that they were capable of in a situation like that. That's magical in a way. I think it's absolutely true. I mean, I try to emphasize with folks who I help organize that you have to approach unionism with the fundamental belief that everybody's capable of change. That like the average ordinary person, the ordinary worker, the person that's not already walking around with their eat the rich shirts, <laughs> that doesn't yeah. mean that they're a foregone conclusion, that they're just somebody that will never be a part of a more militant culture or actions to fight against the tyranny of the boss. Um, and, and to kind of add another dimension to what you're saying about a general suspicion of membership, I think part of that is also a general kind of lack of confidence in the capacity of membership. Like I hear a lot of times, not like super intentional, but underneath what people say is this belief that most members are just stupid, you know, that they, they have to be led, that they're basically like made of putty and that you have to kind of mold them in your own image and like lead them to the salvation. And you can't trust them to actually do these things for themselves. And it's just so baked in to the culture of both mainstream society, but even in the union world too. What's well, interesting, I've talked to, and some of my friends who organize in, in public, public sector unions have, have remarked on this. Um, you know, obviously the Janus decision was a, a terrible thing. You know, we, we hate right to work. You never hear me saying, you know, you got to hand it to, to right to work. But I do think that in some, some public sector unions have found that the, the necessity since Janus of actually doing membership drives, talking to people, trying to get people one by one to sign up for the union, pay their dues. It creates a culture of, of perpetual constant organizing. And it would be great if that constant organizing could be used to, you know, build a strike threat or, you know, other other kinds of um, outlets instead of just, you know, getting people to 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 pay dues and, and become members. But I think it's it's an interesting reminder of how much we kind of take for granted, and it's easy to get complacent. And I, I think that there's there's something to be said for in places that aren't dealing with the the right to work issue. You know, saying what's the what's the equivalent? You know, really kind of to be being grateful for that opportunity. You know, to say in, instead of you know having to go around and talk to everyone and to to get them to to sign up for the union. We can go around and talk to everyone and you know, get, get them to do to do other things. Got to be talking to everyone. It's not easy, of course. The definition of more easier said than done. But I think the the idea of like you know, oh, thank God, you know, we've we've got this contract in place where it's not coming up for renewal for a few years, so we don't have to talk to members. Until, <laughs> right, until we don't then. have to work very hard for <laughs> yeah. a while. We get to relax. Yeah, no, it's true. You know, I, the first staff job I had as an organizer was for a public sector union, and it was the year prior to Janus. So I got to see like the year prior and then the year post. And it was interesting because so much of the lead up was the larger union, uh, the AFT, had developed a lot of programs like member organizer programs and like systems around internal organizing to like really beef up and like try to minimize the the harm that Janice was going to cause across its yeah. public sector unions. And that required like a shift in even like how we talked about it, even pre-Janice, because when I entered into the union, it wasn't like a completely apathetic or loose, you know, membership union. It was just 
people didn't have to try very hard to get like member signups and like the the money was flush so it was kind of like most of the priorities and the ways people would recruit people into the union was through like social activities like come to our meeting because we just so happen to get two kegs of beer and it's going to be a blast you know and it's like that's not how we should be describing the general membership meetings or the like reason that it's important to be there so we had to like shift a lot of the culture and like even like how we talked about organizing and it really did help minimize some of the damage of Janus but even post Janus it's like it just intensified the need to make it a real member-driven approach. I think the still the thing that you're pointing at that's still true is that it was still always in the service of kind of like an instrumental view of what the union is. The union was effectively a contract that was settled with the boss and not really about the broader power of the working class and the ability to transform society. So even though these internal programs were helpful and started to kind of point in that direction, there's still kind of a limit to the horizon that they were able to accomplish. And, you know, I, I think we could probably meander a lot about how you can break out of that, that trap, that box. But it was just one of the things that I've I personally experienced in a public sector union pre and post Janus. It points to one of the most important limitations of the a kind of narrow, you know, contract focused view, which is that contracts aren't self-enforcing. The organizing I've done is, has been in the higher ed sector this is a place where employers kind of flaunt contracts, you know, with with relative impunity. Even outside that sector, you know, we've we've seen the Starbucks case, just how how toothless an RB enforcement is. The irony is that even if you have a very a very narrow, you know, contract focused view of what unions are about, unions have to enforce their their contracts. It it, it doesn't happen spontaneously. And you know this this requires a, a culture of shop stewardism, and member education. I mean, you you just you can't. There's no point in in, in having a, a robust contract. You know, if if you don't have the culture of organizing and agitation and empowerment that's that's necessary to actually enforce it. We probably should come to a conclusion here, but. When I read this, when we're talking, the other thing it seems to me that would be a necessary ingredient of any kind of large, larger revival of militant labor unionism is, uh, I guess, the reemergence of dual unions. Like when I look at labor history, it always seems to me that, you know, in the early 20th century, it was like pejorative term. Anything that fell outside of the house of labor, the official mainstream was considered like a dual union, like a common union or you know, in an IWW industrial union, something like that. But that those also seem to be the moments of like the greatest union strength or like moments of upsurge when there was like a competitive threat and requirement that even conservative unions have to fight to entice workers to join their ranks. So I wonder what you think about the prospects of maybe we've seen some glimpses of this, like an emergence of kind of new independent unions from outside the existing mainstream and whether there's like a space that that can also further expand the horizon of what's possible in the labor movement. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, I, I think there's, I would hear as well, I would say all hands on deck. It's the like, in in like climate policy, the the Obama administration would say like all of the above, you know, Uh <laughs> You know that's that's kind of my my feeling here. Yeah, I mean there there are some notable successes of, of of independent unions. At the same time, I think the UAW example 
you know, shows that it would also be a mistake to just write off, you know, the bigger unions and say, you know, well, they're, it's too entrenched, you know, there's, there's nothing to be done there. Ideally, we'd have, where appropriate, we'd have independent unions coming in and, you know, being able to, to push a, a more radical line unencumbered by um, whatever leadership. But there are also disadvantages there in terms of, you know, resources, national scope. That's the biggest, most established bureaucratic unions that actually have the kind of like class-wide reach. You know, that's that's really important to kind of build a sense of of unions as as an, an entry into a bigger working class political struggle, not just about one particular workplace. So, you know, then it becomes really important to contest leadership and existing power structures in the, the existing union. Yeah. And all of the above approach is what I'd recommend. Great. Well, our guest has been Eric Baker. We were talking largely about an article written for Jewish Currents, Revaluing the Strike. Eric Baker is an American historian, associate editor at The Drift, and former UAW staff organizer. I really appreciate you coming on the show. I love talking strikes. I think that's been a pretty consistent theme throughout this podcast history. And I appreciate it so much, just kind of your provocation to get back to the political roots of striking so where it's not just seen as a last resort for bargaining. Thanks, Alex. Just a young man Trying to do my very best But all my girl gives me Is unhappiness Oh,